Part One, Chapter Three of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part One of Chapter Three The Charwoman. One. George entered Alexandra Grove very early the next evening, having dined inadequately and swiftly, so that he might reach the neighbourhood of Marguerite at the first moment justifiable. He would have omitted dinner and trusted to Marguerite's kitchen only that, in view of the secrecy resolved upon, appearances had to be preserved. The secrecy in itself was delicious, but even the short experiences of the morning had shown both of them how extremely difficult it would be for two people who were everything to each other to behave as though they were nothing to each other. George hoped, however, that Mr. Hayne would again be absent, and he was anticipating exquisite hours. At the precise instant when he put his latch-key in the door, the door was pulled away from him by a hand within, and he saw a woman of about thirty-five, plump but not stout, in a blue sateen dress, bonneted but not gloved. She had pleasant, commonplace features and brown hair. Several seconds elapsed before George recognised in her Mrs. Lobley, the charwoman of number eight, and when he did so, he was a little surprised at her presentableness. He had met her very seldom in the house, he was always late for breakfast, and his breakfast was always waiting for him. On Sundays he was generally out. If he did catch sight of her, she was invariably in a rough apron, and as a rule on her knees. An acquaintance had scarcely progressed far enough for him to call her Mrs. Lobb with any confidence. He had never seen her at night, though upon occasion he had heard her below in the basement, and for him she was associated with mysterious nocturnal goings and comings by the basement door. That she should be using the front door was as startling as that she should be so nobly attired in blue sateen. Good evening, Mr. Cannon, she said in her timid voice, too thin for her body. He noticed that she was perturbed. Hitherto she had always addressed him as Sir. Excuse me, she said, and with an apologetic air she slipped past him and departed out of the house. Mr. Haym was visible just within the doorway of the sitting-room, and behind him the table with the tea-things still on it. George had felt considerably self-conscious in Mr. Haynes' presence at the office, and he was so preoccupied by his own secret mighty affair that his first suspicion connected the strange apparition of a new Mrs. Lobley and the peculiar look on Mr. Haynes' face with some disagreeable, premature and dramatic explosion of the secret mighty affair. His thoughts, though absurd, ran thus because they could not run in any other way. "'Ah, Mr. Cannon,' said Mr. Hayne queerly, "'you're in early tonight?' A, "'A bit earlier,' George admitted, with caution. I "'Have to read, you know.' He was using the word read in the examination sense. "'If you could spare me a minute,' smiled Mr. Hayne. "'Certainly.' "'Have a cigarette,' said Mr. Hayne, as soon as George had deposited his hat and come into the room. This quite unprecedented offer reassured George who, in spite of reason, had continued to fear that the landlord had something in his mind about his daughter and his lodger. Mr. Hayne presented his well-known worn cigarette case, and then, with precise and calm gestures, carefully shut the door. "'The fact is,' said he, "'I wanted to tell you something. I told Mr. Enright this afternoon, as I thought was proper, and it seems to me that you are the next person who ought to be informed.' "'Oh, yes?' I'm going to be married. The deuce you are. 
The light words had scarcely escaped from young George before he perceived that his tone was a mistake and that Mr. Hayne was in a state of considerable emotion which would have to be treated very carefully. And George, too, now suddenly partook of the emotion. He felt himself to be astonished and even shaken by Mr. Hayne's news. The atmosphere of the interview changed in an instant. Mr. Hayne moved silently on slippered feet to the mantelpiece, out of the circle of lamplight, and dropped some ash into the empty fireplace. I congratulate you, said George. Thank you, said Mr. Hayne brightly, seizing gratefully on the Fustian phrase, eager to hallmark it as genuine and put it among his treasures. Without doubt he was flattered. Yes, he proceeded, as it were reflectively. I have asked Mrs. Lobley to be my wife, and she has done me the honour to consent. He had the air of having invented the word specially to indicate that Mrs. Lobley was descending from a throne in order to espouse him. It could not have occurred to him that they had ever been used before, and that the formula was classic. He smiled again, and went on. Of course, I have known and admired Mrs. Lobley for a long time. What we should have done without her valuable help in this house, I don't like to think. I really don't. Her help in this house, thought the ruthless George, behind cigarette smoke. Why doesn't he say right out she's the charwoman? If I was marrying a charwoman, I should say I was marrying a charwoman. Then he had a misgiving. Should I? I wonder whether I should. And he remembered that ultimately the charwoman was going to be his own mother-in-law. He was aware of a serious qualm. Mrs. Lobley has had an uphill fight since her first husband's death, said Mr. Hayne. He was an insurance agent of the Prudential. She's come out of it splendidly. She always kept up a little home, though it was only two rooms, and she'll only leave it because I can offer her a better one. I've always admired her, and I'm sure the more you know her, the more you'll like her. She's a woman in a thousand, Mr. Cannon. I expect she is. George agreed feebly. He could not think of anything to say. And I'm thankful I can offer her a better home. I don't mind telling you now that at one time I began to fear I shouldn't have a home. I've had my ambitions, Mr. Cannon. I was meant for a quantity severe. I was one, you may say, but it was not to be. I came down in the world, but I kept my head above water. And then in the end, with the little money I had, I bought this house. Five hundred and seventy-five pounds. It needed some negotiation. Ground rent, ten pounds per annum, and seventy years to run. You see, all along I'd had the idea of building a studio in the garden. I was one of the first to see the commercial possibilities of studios in Chelsea. But of course I know Chelsea. I made the drawings for the studio myself. Mr Enright kindly suggested a few improvements. With all my experience, I was in a position to get it put up as cheaply as possible. You'd be surprised at the number of people in the building lying anxious to oblige me. It cost under £300. I had to borrow most of it, but I paid it off. What's the consequence? The consequence is that the rent of the studio and the top rooms brings me in over 8% on all I spent on the house and the studio together, and I'm living rent-free myself. But jolly good. Yes, if I'd had capital, Mr Cannon, I could have made thousands out of studios. Thousands. I fancy I've the gift, but I've never had the capital, and that's all there is to it. He smacked his lips and leaned back against the mantelpiece. You may tell me I've realised my ambitions. Not all of them, Mr Cannon, not all of them. 
if i'd had money i should have had leisure and i should have improved myself reading i mean study literature music painting history of architecture all that sort of thing i've got the taste for it i know i've got the taste for it but what could i do i gave it up you'll never know how lucky you are mr cannon i gave it up however i've nothing to be ashamed of at any rate i hope not george nodded appreciatively he was touched he was even impressed he admitted the naivety of the ageing man his vanity his sentimentality but he saw himself to be in the presence of an achievement and though the crowd of mr hames achievement was to marry a charwoman still the achievement impressed and the shabby man with a lined common face was looking back at the whole of his life there was something positively formidable in that alone he was at the end george was at the beginning and george felt callow and deferential the sensation of callowness at once heightened his resolve to succeed. All George's sensations seemed mysteriously to transform themselves into food for this great resolve. And what does Miss Haym say to all this? he asked, rather timidly and wildly. It was a venturesome remark. It might well have been called an impertinence. But the image of Marguerite was involved in all the workings of his mind, and it would not be denied expression. Mr. Hame lifted his back from the mantelpiece sharply. Then he hesitated, moving forward a little. Um, Mr. Cannon, he said, it, it, it's curious you should ask that. His voice trembled, and at the vibration George was suddenly apprehensive. Mr. Hame had soon recovered from his original emotion, but now he seemed to be in danger of losing control of himself. George nervously cleared his throat and apologised. I, I didn't mean... I better tell you... Mr. Hame interrupted him, rather loudly. We've just had a terrible scene with my daughter, a terrible scene. He seldom referred to Marguerite by her Christian name. Mr. Cannon, I had hoped to get through my life without a scandal, and especially an open scandal. But it seems as if I shouldn't, if I know my daughter. It was not my intention to say anything, far from it. Outsiders ought not to be troubled. I, I like you, Mr. Cannon. She left us a few moments ago. And as she didn't put her hat on, she must be either at the studio or at Ag's. She went out of the house, George questioned awkwardly. Mr. Hame nodded, and then without warning he dropped like an inert lump onto a chair and let his head fall onto his hand. George was frightened as well as mystified. The spectacle of the old man, at one moment boasting ingenuously of his career, and at the next almost hysterical with woe, roused his pity in a very disconcerting manner, and from his sight the Lucas and Enright factotum vanished utterly, and was supplanted by a tragic human being. But he had no idea how to handle the unexampled situation with dignity. He realised painfully his own lack of experience, and his overmastering impulse was to get away while it was still possible to get away. Moreover, he desired intensely to see and hear Marguerite. Perhaps I had better find out where she is, he absurdly suggested, and departed from the room feeling like a criminal reprieved. The old man did not stir. 2. Can I come in, said George, hatless, pushing open the door of the studio, which was ajar. There were people in the bright and rather chilly studio, and none of them moved until the figure arriving out of the darkness was identified. Mr. Prince, who in the far corner was apparently cleaning or adjusting his press, then came forward with a quiet, shy, urbane welcome. 
Marguerite herself stood nearly under the central lamp, talking to Ag, who was seated. The somewhat celebrated Ag immediately rose, and said in her somewhat deep voice to Marguerite, I must go. Ag was the eldest daughter of the Ag family, a broad-minded and turbulent tribe who acknowledged the nominal headship of a hard-working and successful barrister. She was a painter, and lived and slept in semi-independence in a studio of her own in Manresa Road, but maintained close and constant relations with the rest of the tribe. In shape and proportions fairly tall and fairly thin, she counted in shops among the stock sizes, but otherwise she was entitled to call herself unusual. She kept her hair about as short as the hair of a boy who has postponed going to the barbers for a month after the proper time, and she incompletely covered the hair with the smallest possible hat. Her coat was long and straight, and her skirt short. Her boots were high, reaching well up the calf, but they had high heels and were laced in some hundreds of holes. She carried a cane in a neatly gloved hand. She was twenty-seven. In style, Marguerite and Ag make a great contrast with one another. Each was fully aware of the contrast and liked it. "'Good evening, Mr. Cannon,' said Ag, firmly, not shaking hands. Georgia met her once in the way of small talk at her father's house. Having yet to learn the important truth that it takes all sorts to make a world, he did not like her and wondered why she existed. He could understand Ag being somewhat fond of Marguerite, but he could not understand Marguerite being fond of Ag, and the friendship between these two, now that he actually for the first time saw it in being, irked him. "'Is anything the matter? Have you seen father?' asked Marguerite in a serious, calm tone, turning to him. Like George, she had run into the studio without putting on any street attire. George perceived that there was no secret in the studio as to the crisis in the Hame family. Clearly the topic had been under discussion. Prince, as well as Ag, was privy to it. He did not quite like that. He was vaguely jealous of both Prince and Ag. Indeed, he was startled to find that Marguerite could confide such a matter to Prince, at any rate, without consulting himself. While not definitely formulating the claim in his own mind, he had somehow expected of Marguerite that, until she met him, she would have existed absolutely sole, without any sentimental connections of any sort, in abeyance, waiting for his miraculous advent. He was glad that Mr. Buckingham Smith was not of the conclave. He felt that he could not have tolerated Mr. Buckingham Smith. "'Yes, I've seen him,' George answered. "'Did he tell you?' "'Yes.' Mr. Prince, after a little hovering, retired to his press, and a wheel could be heard creaking. "'What did he tell you?' "'He told me about the marriage, and I gathered there had been a bit of a scene. "'Nothing else?' "'No.' Ag then interjected, fixing her blue eyes on George. "'Marguerite is coming to live with me in my studio.' And her challenging gaze met George's. "'Oh!' George could not suppress his pained inquietude of this decision having been made without his knowledge. Both girls misapprehended his feeling. That's it, is it? Well, said Ag, what can Mr. Hame expect? Here's Marguerite been paying this woman two shillings a day, and her food, and letting her take a parcel home at nights, and then all of a sudden she comes dressed up for tea and sits down, and Mr. Hame says she's his future wife. What does he expect? Does he expect Marguerite to kiss her and call her mamma? The situation's impossible. But you can't stop people from falling in love, Ag, you know. It's not a crime. 
said Mr. Prince, in his weak voice, surprisingly, from the press. I know it's not a crime, said Hag sharply, and nobody wants to stop people from falling in love. If Mr. Hayne chooses to go mad about a charwoman, when his wife, and such a wife, has been dead barely three years, that's his concern. It's true the lady isn't much more than half his age, and that the whole business would be screamingly funny if it wasn't disgusting. But still, he's a free agent, and Marguerite's a free agent too, I hope. Of course, he's thunderstruck to discover that Marguerite is a free agent. He would be. He certainly is in a state, said George, with an uneasy short laugh. Hag continued, and why is he in such a state? Because Marguerite says she shall leave the house? Not a bit. Only because of what he thinks is the scandal of her leaving. Mr. Habe is a respectable man. He's simply all respectability. Respectability is his God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Always has been. He'd sacrifice everything to respectability, except the lovely Lobley. It's not respectable in a respectable family for a girl to leave home on account of her stepmother. And so he's in a state, if you please. If he wanted to carry on with Mrs. Lobley, let him carry on with her. But no, that's not respectable. He's just got to marry her. Hag sneered. George was startled, perhaps excusably, at the monstrous doctrine implied in Hag's remarks. He had thought himself a man of the world, experienced, unshockable. But he blenched, and all his presence of mind was needed to preserve a casual, cool demeanour. The worst of the trial was Marguerite's tranquil acceptance of the attitude of her friend. She glanced at Ag in silent, admiring approval. He surmised that until that moment he had been perfectly ignorant of what girls really were. "'I see,' said George, courageously. And then, strangely, he began to admire, too. And he pulled himself together. "'I think I shall leave tomorrow,' Marguerite announced. "'Morning. It will be much better. She can look after him. I don't see that I owe any duty.' "'Yes, you do, dear,' Hag corrected her impressively. "'You owe a duty to your mother, to her memory. That's the duty you owe. "'I'll come round for you tomorrow myself in a four-wheeler. Let me see about eleven. George hated the sound of the word, "'duty.' "'Thank you, dear,' Marguerite murmured, and the girls shook hands. They did not kiss. "'Bye-bye, Princey.' "'Bye-bye, Ag.' "'Good night, Mr. Cannon.' Ag departed, slightly banging the door. "'I think I'll go back home now,' said Marguerite, in a sweet, firm tone. "'Had they gone out?' "'Who, your father and what's her name? She's gone, but he hasn't. If you don't want to meet him tonight again, hadn't you better—' Oh, if she's gone, he'll be gone too by this time. Trust him. Mr. Prince approached them, urging Marguerite soothingly to stay as long as she liked. She shook her head and pressed his hand affectionately. 3. When George and Marguerite re-entered number 8 by the front door, Mr. Hayne was still sitting overcome at the tea-table. They both had sight of him through the open door of the parlour. Marguerite was obviously disturbed to see him there, but she went straight into the room. George moved into the darkness of his own room. He heard the voices of the other two. "'Then you mean to go?' Hame asked accusingly. Marguerite answered in a calm, good-humoured, sweet tone. "'Of course, if you mean to marry Mrs. Lobley.' "'Marry Mrs. Lobley? Of course I shall marry her!' Hame's voice rose. "'What right have you to settle where I shall marry and where I shan't?' I fixed everything up with Celia Ag, said Marguerite very quietly. 
You've soon arranged it. No reply for Marguerite. The old man spoke again. You've no right. It'll be an open scandal. Then a silence. George now thought impatiently that a great fuss was being made about a trifle, and that a matter much more important deserved attention. His ear caught a violent movement. The old man came out of the parlour, and, instead of taking his hat and rushing off to find the enchantress, he walked slowly and heavily upstairs, preceded by his immense shadow thrown from the hall lamp. He disappeared round the corner of the stairs. George, under the influence of the apparition, was forced to modify his view that all the fuss was over a trifle. He tiptoed into the parlour. Marguerite was standing at the table. As soon as George came in, she began to gather the tea-things together on the tray. "'I say,' whispered George. Marguerite's bent, tranquil face had a pleasant look as she handled the crockery. "'I shall get him a nice breakfast tomorrow,' she said, also in a whisper. "'And as soon as he's gone to the office, I shall pack. It won't take me long, really.' "'But won't Mrs. Lobley be here?' "'What if she is? I've nothing against Mrs. Lobley.' "'Nor, as far as that goes, against poor father either. "'You see what I mean?' "'He told me you'd had a terrible scene. "'That's what he said, a terrible scene.' "'It depends what you call a scene,' she said smoothly. "'I was rather upset just at first. "'Who wouldn't be? "'But—' "'She stopped, listening with a glance at the ceiling. "'There was not the slightest sound overhead. "'I wonder what he's doing.' "'She picked up the tray. "'I'll carry that,' said George.' No, it's all right. I'm used to it. You might bring me the tablecloth, but you won't drop the crumbs out of it, will you? He followed her with the bunched-up tablecloth down the dangerous basement steps into the kitchen. She passed straight into the little scullery, where the tray with its contents was habitually left for the attention of Mrs. Lobley the next morning. When she turned again, he halted her, as it were, at the entrance from the scullery with a question. Shall you be all right? With egg? Yes. How do you mean, all right? Well, for money and so on. Oh, yes. She spoke lightly and surely with a faint, confident smile. I was thinking as they cut down your prices. Oh, I shall have heaps. Ag and I, why, we can live splendidly for next to nothing. You'll see. He was rebuffed. He felt jealous of both Ag and Prince, but especially of Prince. It still seemed outrageous to him that Prince should have been taken into her confidence. Prince had known of the affair before himself. He was more than jealous. He had a greater grievance. Margaret Beat appeared to have forgotten all about love, all about the mighty event of their betrothal. She appeared to have put it away as casually as she had put away the tray. Yet ought not the event to count supreme over everything else, over no matter what? He was desolate and unhappy. Did you tell Ag? he asked. What about? Our being engaged and so on. She started towards him. Dearest, she protested, not in the least irritated or querulous, but kindly, affectionately. Without asking you first, didn't we agree we wouldn't say anything to anybody? But we shall have to think about telling Ag. He met her and suddenly seized her. They kissed and she shut her eyes. He was ecstatically happy. Oh, she murmured in his embrace, I'm so glad I've got you. And she opened her eyes and tears fell from them. She cried quietly, without excitement and without shame. She cried with absolute naturalness. 
her tears filled him with profound delight. And in the exquisite subterranean intimacy of the kitchen, he saw with his eyes and felt with his arms how beautiful she was. Her face, seen close, was incredibly soft and touching. Her nose was the most wonderful nose ever witnessed. He gloated upon her perfection, for literally to him she was perfect. With what dignity and with what a sense of justice she had behaved in the studio, in the parlour and here. He was gloriously reassured as he realised how in their joint future he would be able to rely upon her fairness, her conscientiousness, her mere pleasantness which nothing could disturb. Throughout the ordeal of the evening she had not once been ruffled. She had not said an unkind word, nor given an unkind gesture, nor exhibited the least trace of resentment. Then she had taste, and she was talented. But perhaps the greatest quality of all was her adorable beauty and a charm. And yet, no, the final attraction was that she trusted him, depended on him, cried in his embrace. He loosed her with reluctance, and she deliciously wiped her eyes on his handkerchief, and he took her again. "'I suppose I must leave here too now,' he said. "'Oh, George!' she exclaimed. "'You mustn't. Why should you? I don't want you to.' "'Don't you? Why?' "'Oh, I don't, truly. You'll be just as well looked after as if I was here. I do hope you'll stay.' That settled it. And Manresa Road was not far off. She sat on the table and leaned against him a long time. Then she said she must go upstairs to her room. She had so much to do. He could not forbid, because she was irresistible. She extinguished the kitchen lamp, and side by side they groped up the stairs to the first floor. The cat nonchalantly passed them in the hall. "'Put the lights out here, will you, when you go to bed?' she whispered. He felt flattered. She offered her face. The lovely things slipped away upstairs with unimaginable, ravishing grace. She vanished. There was silence. After a moment, George could hear the clock ticking in the kitchen below. He stood motionless amid the dizzying memories of her glance, her gestures, the softness of her body. What had happened to him was past belief. He completely forgot the existence of the old man in love. End of part one, chapter three.